We're looking at words that are associated with the Easter season. Sin, gospel, judgment, and salvation. Words that have been lost in translation, elements of their meaning that might have slipped away over time. In order to understand judgment, which we're going to talk about tonight, we'll look at judgment. We're going to have to understand sin. And we've been talking about that as we looked a couple of weeks ago at sin. And we made this assumption that sin, biblically, is a controlling power, not a controllable choice. Paul described our problem using these words. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He said, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, this I keep on doing. He not only described the problem, but then thankfully he diagnosed it and he helped us to know. So if this is the case, what is the problem? And what Paul said is we are mastered by sin. He was speaking of himself and in general of all of us. Our default setting is that we're mastered by sin, and that's what Jesus came to rectify. Uh, Paul says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What Paul describes, he is mastered by sin living within. And again, sin here is not an act. It's a controlling power. The acts are precipitated by the power, the controlling power of sin. That's the way Paul speaks about it. It's almost as if sin is a slave master, and we are its slaves. And he described our relationship, again, our problem, using another metaphor. It says, or do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And then he applies this. He's not really talking about divorce and remarriage. He's talking about, he's using the metaphor of marriage to help us understand something. And he seems to say this, we are married to law. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Paul's making the point, it's almost as if law and Jesus are two different mates. And you can marry one or the other, but you can't be married to both at the same time. That's spiritual bigamy. So we're either married to law or we're married to Christ. And Paul talks about the problem with being married to law. And look what he says. He says, while we were 
He says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members so that we bore fruit for death. He says, while we're in the flesh, our sinful passions, and you know what sinful passions are. It's the desire to do things that God doesn't want us to do. And Paul describes these sinful passions, their, their desires and the kind of the, we get pulled in the direction of doing things that God doesn't want us to do. And Paul described that these passions, where they come from, what they're stimulated by. And that's what we looked at last time. It's really pretty surprising when you think about it. What stimulates sinful passions? And we would imagine, well, money, sex, power, this, that, or the other. And what he says, the sinful passions are aroused by law, um, which is a surprising thing. They're aroused by the law of God, the old commandment, the Ten Commandments. And this is really strange. It's something like a fireman guilty of arson. Law spreads the flames it's seemingly supposed to control. And so the commandments stimulate the very behaviors they prohibit, which is really a surprising thing. And that's what we never would get this if Paul didn't say it. When you're underneath a covenant that says, do this or else, that covenant, you end up doing the very things that the law tells you not to do. And now we're in a position to understand what happened at the cross. Um, Paul describes that to be married to law is to be awfully wedded. And to be married to Christ is to be happily married. Uh, again, he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work on our members to bear fruit for death. And again, so now with respect to why did Jesus die? And what does he accomplish by dying? It says, you died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. You died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Biblically, what it says, the only way you can come out and get divorced from law is through death. And so it's either our death or we can be considered dead with Jesus when we place our faith in him. He died, his death to law becomes our death to law, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. That's what the gospel is. Jesus dies so that his severance with law allows us to no longer be under the jurisdiction of law, and we can be go from awfully wedded to happily married. And when we understand the new covenant that he comes to bring, the more we understand about that new covenant, it really starts to create godly desires within us. Um, so we then become lawfully widowed. We go from awfully wedded under the dominion of law by being lawfully widowed, included in Christ and his death and resurrection. And so then we can become happily married um, to Jesus rather than to law. And we ask the question, what difference does this make? It makes a lot of difference, but the Bible says something about this. It, a very familiar verse says, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I want you to notice what it says here. Jesus came into the world not to judge the world. To judge means to sift or separate. It's to divide something into good and bad. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He didn't come to judge the world's actions or deeds. That's not really why he came. He came to save the world. And then it goes on to say, this is the judgment. Um, When you determine a sickness, for instance, we've been... Dealing with COVID, some of us are vaccinated, but whenever you go into a place and they're trying to determine if you're going to be able to go into the place or not, what do they do? They take your temperature. And so when you're determining physical sickness or wellness, you, the judgment is the temperature. So you step into the thing, you get scanned, or you, you step in front of that thing, and depending on what your temperature is, that's the judgment as to whether you can come in or you have to stay out. And What is the judgment then with respect to God? What is his focus? It's a good question. When he determines spiritual sickness or spiritual wellness, what does he look at? What does he measure? What does he judge? It describes what it is. And it says, this is the judgment. And it's going to describe what it is. This is the judgment. This is what how God takes our spiritual temperature. Um, Light has come into the world, and men loved darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. What does God's judgment focus on? At first glance, it seems to focus on evil deeds. That's why the person described in verse 19, aware of his evil deeds, he skitters away from God and hides from him. It would seem that evil deeds are what God judges, but I don't think that's what this verse is saying. Men hiding from God, that's what he judges. He doesn't judge the behavior, it seems. He judges the belief, hiding evidence. It evidences the belief that God sent his son to judge our evil deeds. But as you see, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. So the person described who aware of evil deeds and hides from the presence of God His problem is not his deeds. His problem is his belief. He is assuming that God sent Jesus to do something that God didn't send Jesus to do. He didn't come to expose and look and divide between bad and good. What he came is to save the world. Um, Hiding evidence is the belief that God judges evil deeds, that that's what God is preoccupied with. And that's not what he's preoccupied with, because as it says, he didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. That's not why Jesus came. Hiding evidences then a problem with our beliefs, not our behaviors. 
That's what God judges on this side of the cross. He judges beliefs, not behaviors. He judges our, our view of him. Um, Bible says in the Old Testament, then the Lord said, because this people draw near to me, draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me. Here's what problem God had, that at that time, people would say the right thing. And they would draw close with what they say, and they would say all the right things, but really what was happening underneath where God could see, they would distance their hearts from him. What they'd end up saying to him were all the right things but not the real things. They would say all the pretty words that they felt God really wanted to hear, but they didn't tell him about what they were dealing with inside. And on this side of the cross, what God would say, why are you hiding? Why? Why would you, if you have a struggle, if you have a doubt, why would you keep that? That betrays a belief problem, and that is what God judges. And what he would have us do is learn to be authentic with him and vulnerable. That when we have issues of doubt or whatever, that we would believe enough in why God sent his son, not to judge, but to save, that we would come to the place gradually. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. That we would come to God comfortably, openly, authentically. The more we understand why God sent his son, the more comfortable we'll be with being honest and open with him. It takes time, but that's what God is judging, it seems. Deep distancing. When close words override a far heart, God doesn't listen to the words. He's looking at the heart. Why would we distance? Why do we hide? As, the, as John 3 talked about. In order to, and we're in a position now to understand judgment. According to what it says here, God doesn't judge our deeds. God judges our distancing. The way we, and it takes time that we withhold when we're dealing with something. We kind of keep it to ourselves rather than express it to him. What God's trying to create in us is the understanding of who he is so that we will learn to be honest with God. That's what he wants. God doesn't want our dishonesty. He already sees what's in our heart. And when we bury that or pretend, that's... That's not what he wants. God judges our distancing. God judges our hiding from him. That seems to be what this verse says. It's very different than what you see when you just glance at it. Um, Jesus wasn't sent into the world to judge the world. He was sent into the world to, he, he, was, wasn't, he was not sent into the world to judge the world. He was sent to save it. We don't have to hide from him. This is the significance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross the cross is a, new is a new covenant celebration. 
is having gone from awfully wedded to happily married, communion is kind of a practice for the covenant, new covenant meal that we'll experience when Jesus comes a second time and we're ushered into heaven and we will experience visibly, not by faith, what it means to be in close connection with God. On this side of that occurrence, God would have us live by faith. And this communion celebration reflects what the new covenant is. It's, he says, on the night when he had the last supper with his disciples, when he had taken some bread and, gave th- and had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus came to allow us to enter into a relationship with him, a new covenant relationship with him. And that brings us to the elements. If you take the right by the chair, there is a uh, hermetically sealed container and tip it up so that you, you have the thing with the bread. And if you'd peel that off and, and take the bread out, I'll give you some instructions. Don't take it yet. And if you're at home, um, you do the same thing. If you have some bread, take it. Uh, here's what he said. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's what I'd like you to do. As you eat the bread, I'd like you to think of Christ's death and what it means that we no longer need to be mastered by sin, nor do we need to be married to law. We, Jesus came so that he could usher us, allow us to enter into a relationship with him, an honest one. Thank him for that when you eat the bread, and that he would die so that you could have that relationship. Take and eat. Flip it over. Take the juice. At home, do the same. That's what it says. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As you drink the juice, what I'd like you to consider is what Christ's death means. Here's what the new covenant is. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. As you drink the juice, I want you to think about the new covenant that Jesus died, that you might enter into. Ask Taylor and Micah to come back up, and they're going to sing a song, and then we'll close prayer. We'll close in prayer. What it means to be included in the new covenant is that we no longer have to hide from God. Father, thank you for the plan of salvation, for the cross and what it reflects, a way that we can come into a relationship with you that is not characterized by distance. We don't need to fear. We don't need to recoil, hide. We can learn to be honest. Over time, it's hard to do that, Father. We 
see the Bible, and it's hard for us sometimes to understand how you relate to us. But you indicate that you have rescinded the old covenant and have replaced it with a new covenant. That's why Jesus came, and you would have us believe that. And that's what the gospel is, a new relationship, one that we don't have to be afraid. We can be open. Pray that you'd help that to happen little by little, that you'd help us to believe why you sent your son, that it was an act of love, and it was an invitation to relationship. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.